As human beings, we all have different learning styles. Some learn best through reading, some learn best through doing, and others do best by hearing. But there's nothing like being told a story. There's nothing like sitting down and something I remember as a child was my father hated reading from kids' books. And uh, I don't know whether it was because it cramped his creative style or he just never remembered what he was supposed to be doing. But he'd always make up a story. And uh, it was always wonderful because he'd just make it up on the spot. Complete nonsense, but we enjoyed it so much. And I still remember about that little gnome that played on the, on the garden green. Hmm? Jesus knew this best. And uh, as we've been saying, we've been learning about the parables. And uh, Jesus has been teaching us about his kingdom through the art of stories and through the parables. Some of these we've heard, the talents, the ten virgins, and last week, the prodigal son. There are still more parables to come as we continue on in our series and we'll resume this next week. This morning, however, we're taking a break and we're going to be following another story within the Bible this morning and that's one about Joseph and the multicoloured coat. Now, I was trying to remember the first time I learnt about this story, about Joseph and his multicoloured coat. And it was back in Sunday school, back in Harare, Zimbabwe, in our church called Greystone Park. And I was looking around this morning. It actually wasn't too dissimilar to, to the church here at Monty. We uh, had, a, had a, a kid's church that was always out um, at the back. We had, obviously, the main meeting in the main hall and, um, and about a similar sort of size. And our kid's pastor had us gathered round uh, a, a portable board in a semicircle and uh, he always told his stories using felt and felt backings and felt characters that he would take up and take down um, as the story progressed. Now unfortunately I don't have those and we can't do that um, this morning but we do have a fantastic one which Paul Ryder and Chris have been doing through the uh, through kids church, uh, sorry through kids club on my left here or to your right and um that's Joseph just down there, and that's the one I want us to remember as we go through this morning, which is that Joseph lived in hope. And uh, I pray that that will be the message this morning. And before we launch properly into the sermon, I just want to give us some context around where we find ourselves in Genesis this morning. So you can break Genesis down into eight categories or eight sections. First four is all around the story of creation the fall of Adam and Eve and humankind, of the flood and of the Tower of Babel. And in the second grouping is the four great men of the time, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then in the last 14 chapters of Genesis, Joseph. And here we are this morning in chapter 37, which is the first chapter and the first time we hear about Joseph. I'm going to read from the first 11 verses again. Uh, we'll give some co- I'll give some comments as we read through, and then I'll carry on down to verses 36, and we'll talk about how this fits into the into the bigger picture of Genesis, the bigger picture of the Bible, and how it can apply into our own lives this morning. Uh, and I'm excited to share from this passage, and I think it'll point to Jesus in a way, in a few ways that might surprise us. So, if everyone can turn to Genesis 
37 verse 2 again, and we'll read from verse 2. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he had an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Why was the robe such a big deal? And how does it fit? Well, last week we heard Josh uh, preach about the prodigal son in Luke 15 and the father calling for the best robe and a ring and for sandals when his son returned. Now, for the common people at the time, a simple tunic was worn, a piece of cloth with a hole cut in the centre, put it over your head, and tie it together. Obviously, the front piece would go at your front and the back at the back, and then it would gather up under the arms. That was what Jesus wore, and so did the common folk at the time. If someone wore a cloak with sleeves or a robe with sleeves, it actually called them out as being part of the nobility or the upper class. And it went all the way down to the ankles, not the knees. And again, again, separation because they belonged to the nobility, not the working class. And that's because... You didn't have to run, you didn't have to work, you didn't have to exercise. So it showed that you didn't have to do all the manual labour that everyone else had to. But this coat, the one that Jacob, uh, sorry, Joseph was given, shows that he was marked as nobility and that's why the brothers took offence. It had sleeves and it came down to the ankles. And the thing that's wrong here is that Jacob was probably in an error in making Joseph his favourite son. And it's always a tricky one, particularly when always the kids ask, going, who do you like and who's your favourite? And even though the kids probably know, as a parent, you should never <laughs> actually put it down into facts. We love them all equally. But by setting him apart as he did and putting him all the way above his brothers in a class of his own, Jacob brought down the hatred and envy of his Joseph's brother onto Joseph And it was the contributing factor, not only in their hatred, but in their desire to kill and eliminate him altogether. As we carry on in verse 5, it says, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing to him or bowing to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So here we have Joseph. Now, Joseph is the son of Rachel, one of Jacob's wives. Jacob married Leah and Rachel, who were sisters. 
and they had children not only through these, and sorry, Jacob didn't have children just through these two women, but also their servants as well. And we see this when it starts out in the, you know, when it says these generations of Jacob. And it's a common theme and a common formula they use in the book of Genesis. And we see that these generations are pointing to a line that started in Genesis 3 and was renewed in Genesis 12 with Abraham. And now we see as the story progresses, how the family goes is very important to us. And therefore, that's why we have these are the generations. And we're introduced to a teenager called Joseph. And he's pastoring the flock with his brothers. He is with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, who were servants of his father's wives, Leah and Rachel. So this would have meant that if we read earlier in chapter 36, you would have saw 35, would have seen that there was uh, the brothers or the brothers from Zilpah and Bilhah were Dan, Naphtali, Gad and Asher. And Joseph brought a bad report to his father. Now it's pretty common for people to use this kind of verse and say, well, Okay, well, that was why Joseph was hated, because he was a dibba-dobba, a, uh, a tattletale, whichever way phrase you want to use. But I don't think that's actually the best way to approach it. His brothers were rotten and rotten to the core. We read earlier on in Genesis that Reuben slept with his stepmother and reading a few chapters earlier that Simeon and Levi in response to their sister um, being assaulted, not only killed the perpetrator, but actually also everyone else in that small city. Taking the women and the children into slavery, binding them and taking all their possessions for themselves. And these brothers are the sorts of individuals that we find in this setting that we're dealing with. And... Uh, if you, don't believe us, if you don't believe me just yet on how rotten they are, just let's keep reading through and we'll see as it carries on. But they're just so absolutely rotten and I think we need to put the weight of the sin where it really rests. Now Joseph may have been naive, but clearly this is being perpetrated by Israel's own favoritism and his brother's evil desires. We notice that Israel or, Joseph or Jacob <coughs> loves Joseph and Joseph's brothers hate him. And this will be all amplified all the more with what we read here in verse 5 and verses 8 and ultimately culminate in verse 11. With their jealousy of him, they despise him and they're jealous of of Jacob's particular love for Joseph. So this is the setting that we find ourselves in in Genesis 37. And now, as we continue to make the way through the rest of the chapter, the question remains, what is going to happen to Joseph, and especially at the hands of his brothers? And um, it definitely doesn't sound like it's going well to the start, and it just seems to be getting worse, and we'll find that out as we continue to read. So again, keep this in mind, and keep again in the mind, in the mind that Joseph lived in hope. So as we read in verse 12, Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am sending you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he set off. Then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. 
So just doing, doing some research, and that would have been about a 90-kilometre trek. Um, that's, again, very interesting. No mobile phones, no telephones, no uh, smoke signals. It's Can you just go 90Ks and then come back and give me an update on how everything's going? It's, uh, it's a fair hike, <laughs> just to give an update. So... Um, but it's an interesting one when he, which he says in verse 14, which is, and we don't see it often, but it says, go and see if all is well with your brothers. And, and if you, I've got a new King James version and in there it talks about go and see if things are peaceably. So it's going asking if there's peace with his brothers. But it says in verse four, as we read earlier, they couldn't speak a kind word to Joseph. So there's no peace, but yet Jacob is asking him to go and see if all is well. It's quite an interesting, quite an interesting uh, paradox there. And it just goes to show that Israel, or, a- or Jacob, which is his name given at birth, is not seeing the drama in the family, and he's blind to actually what's going on. And in verse 15 we read, A man found him wandering, or, and this is Joseph, around in the field and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. So no, Joseph has already gone 90 kilometres up and Dothan's about 25 kilometres further up. So now he's travelled 115 kilometres to try and find his brothers, see if they're peaceful and then go and give his brothers, uh, his father an update. And it says there in verse 18, but his brothers, and this again, just putting in context, so his brothers saw Joseph in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then let's see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him to this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. So the Ishmaelites are also called the Midianites, depending on your translation or further down in the passage. And again, these would have been their descendants of their great-uncle Ishmael, the first child of Abraham, a child of Hagar, the Egyptian slave. And in verse 26 we read, Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. These verses give us insight into the heart of Judah. He's saying it would be wrong to kill Joseph, but it's much better to sell him and make money and make some profit. In verse 28, we read, So when the Midianite merchants came by, 
His brothers pulled Joseph up out of the system and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Again, we're given insight into the heart of Reuben. Not only did he hate Joseph, but he's simply concerned for his own reputation. Not for the life of his brother, but how this might reflect poorly on himself, on Reuben. And we see with both of those verses, just with the two brothers, Judah and Reuben, where their heart is, where their hope is in, and it brings back the verse, and it says, where your treasure is there, your heart lies also. And we can see very clearly there, it's in money, it's in reputation, and it's in the fact that they're being overlooked in their perception. And as Lee mentioned this morning, how easy is it? How often, and how, how often can we look around the world? We can see not only what people have placed their hope in, whether it be sports, fame, wealth, uh, reputation, money, uh, and so much more. But how easy is it to actually look around with the current situation that the world is in and for that hope to dwindle? How easy is it where you can place your hope in these things? And uh, my father, as wise as he is, he, uh, one thing that's always stuck to me when I've asked about this and said, where, where do people place their hope in if it's not God? And his, his simple replies, if we all have a God-shaped hole. Mm. And he goes, only God can fill that hole. But he goes, if people don't believe God, they try and jam and put as much in to that hole as possible. But obviously they'll never fill it. And he goes, and that's where people ultimately become devoted to chasing the dollar, drugs, uh, sports, fame, wealth, and so much more. And uh, unfortunately, we had a recent example of this with work, where one of our employees was found in his home, deceased, uh, due to an overdose. Whether it was accidental or on purpose, we don't know. Um, Unfortunately, we uh, obviously we're not family, so we're not getting the uh, the results of those autopsy, and and um, and I'm sure that will be shared with the family. But the 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 sad part was that when our business owner was actually talking with the local workforce, the reply was that a lot of them actually weren't surprised, mm. um, and this is due to just the environment around the town. Uh, there's not much to do. And a lot of the people actually turn to drugs um, because there is just something, nothing else to do. There's nothing else to live for. There's not a lot of job opportunities. And um, and unfortunately, that's a sad reality. Um, now, I knew of this person when he joined the company. Didn't really work closely with him, uh, but I did know of him and I'd met him a couple of times. So it was definitely a shock for all of us. And especially as he was so young, only 25 and had much of his life to live with such a bright future in front of him. Now, I don't know, and I'm not sure if any of us will ever know, around where did he place his hope in? Did he know about God? Had he been told about the Bible, the good news? 
And did he have a friend or family member that could reach out to him? And then it also made me think about the other locals. And do they know God? Where do they place their hope in? And then it also made me think more locally. And what about my family, my friends and my community? As you can see, it starts getting worse and worse as we progress in this in this story this morning. And in verse 31, it continues, and it says, Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned his son for many days. All of his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. The brothers, they thought that this act will actually end Joseph once and for all. That this might get him out of his, his father's thoughts and that they could finally be recognised and loved with that exclusive love that Jacob kept for Joseph. But what they'd done is actually reinforced Jacob's love for his son Joseph and they couldn't get run rid of, of Joseph being in his mind. It was now fixed. And that image that he has as he as Jacob says he's heading to the grave. And verse thirty six it says, Meanwhile the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And I've been sharing as we've been progressing through this story is there just seems to be a common thread of descent from a place on high and an exalted place, and we just continue to go down. We start with Joseph and his multicoloured robe, sharing of his dreams of how his stock is above all others, how all the celestial bodies are bowing down to him, how he is the favourite son and emissary sent from his father. Where he goes down into the cistern, he's stripped of his robe, and thrown or dumped into that system. And he goes down only to be pulled up and sold into slavery. So Joseph falls down. But we see it not only in Joseph, but also Jacob too. Jacob, who is known as Israel in this account, Jacob when it refers to his own failings, and Israel when it refers to him as the head of the clan, the tribe. And here we see Jacob's fall as well. His heart is soaring with his son and lavishing gifts with him, bestowing upon him favour only at the end to have to say that his soul is now in the grave and he is broken and weeping, just waiting for death. We also see that there is a downward movement in the geography. So when we pull our maps together and our cartographers, and we've been doing this for a long time, as you draw a map and you've got a compass on the top left-hand side or at least somewhere on that map and you've got north pointing up, south pointing down. But in the biblical times, Jerusalem is the high point and when you're going up towards Jerusalem, 
you're always going up and then you go down as you head away. Now, obviously, some of this has to do with seeing it theologically. Some of it's the landscape of the land. It's way up high and everything else is down low. And we see them going all the way from this high place all the way down to the flat area, heading away from Jerusalem and then going down as he gets taken to Egypt. And that is where the chapter ends. But as we started, I'm sure many of you will recall that we did say, how does this fit into the bigger story of, of Genesis, of the Bible, and with Christ? And uh, we see a lot of it being repeated here with Joseph. And I'm sure some of you have caught it. And But Joseph and his brothers are shepherds. And I'm not sure if you've picked up on it as you read through Genesis, but... If you do reading through Genesis, again, I'd really encourage you to try and catch it every time. But anyone, any time that they mention there's a shepherd, and especially that they're in the field, there is always conflict around the corner. Cain and Abel. Abel was a shepherd and died at the hands of Cain. We see it in conflict between Abraham and Lot. And we see it as another kind of internal tribesman as they start conflict as to which land is theirs. We see it between Jacob and Esau. And now here, Jake, Joseph wanders out to the field and we know bad things are about to happen. We see that his brothers, they want to kill him. And really, it's actually murder. They want to shed innocent blood, much like Cain did to Abel and much like Esau wanted to do to Joseph, uh, Jacob. And we see that there's a focus on blood. Where Cain did kill Abel and his blood cried out for vengeance here as well. There was this uh, looking at the blood pouring out and realizing, hey, we want to do, we want to choose something different, and we tap into another idea, and that is the idea of the younger receiving particular favor or blessing. Abel's gift was accepted, not his older brothers. It was Isaac who was the chosen son, not his brother, his older half brother Ishmael. It was Jacob who was the favored son, not Esau. And here we see Joseph receiving particular favour and not the other sons. With this favour comes the idea of love and hatred. Abraham, when he looked at Isaac, said, this is the son, oh sorry, oh yes, this is the son of my old age whom I love. And it's almost word for word for what Jacob would say about Joseph. We see that Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob, and now Jacob, who loved Rachel, now shows a similar source of love to Joseph, and later in Genesis, his younger brother Benjamin. This love and hatred forms this dilemma and this growing sense of demise to his family. That this partiality didn't just start here with Jacob, but it's something that's seen much earlier. We have all kinds of things. There's dreams, and we've seen dreams before. Abraham had visions, Jacob had dreams, and now Jacob had a dream, and now Joseph had a dream. Another one is in robes. When Adam and Eve, Eve sinned, they were given garments of animal skin. But Jacob put on a robe, a robe of goat in order to deceive his father Isaac. And now Joseph's brothers are taking a robe and dipping it in goat's blood so that they can also deceive their father Jacob. So as you can see, the cycle just repeats itself over and over and over again. 
and you might start to wonder what on earth is going on. But if you're familiar with the broader story of the Bible, and this ultimately points to Jesus, we have this glimmer of hope because we've seen many of these things even in the life of Jesus. Betrayal by those closest to him. His life was cast down, even given. There was shedding of the blood. It seemed like there was no hope, and yet it is through this that we see the very redemption of God, that we see God's rescue for humanity, that our sins are the evil that we've done. We find redemption in the blood of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, that in this one moment where Jesus was hanging on the cross, at this moment that this one was, where one on the left was in the grave, in the pit in hell, we find our salvation because that wasn't the end of the story of what God was doing. And so that leaves us with our application. So what does Genesis 37 have for us this morning? And there are two things that I want to share with you about things that we don't see. First of all, we often don't see our own sin. And secondly, we can't see the future. Let's start with our own sin. One of the things highlighted in Genesis 37 is the blindness that people have for their own sin. Israel did not understand the problems that would be created by marrying Rachel and Leah, by then having children with Bilhah and Zilpah. And if you didn't understand that giving Joseph a favourite robe or his favourite spot, showing everybody how much he loved him more than the other children, and he's just blind to the damage that he's doing. He's blind to the situation in his own family. The brothers were blind by their own hatred, by their own jealousy. They were willing to kill. And eventually they did actually sell their brother into slavery. Judah was blinded by his greed and looked for a way to make extra money. Reuben was blinded by needing to somehow protect his reputation, maybe even willing to throw his brothers under the bus on how they wanted to kill Joseph, but he was the one that rescued him. And then when Joseph had actually been sold and he couldn't find him, he was pleading and saying, what was going to be happening to me? And uh, as Josh shared earlier, it's, uh, we don't always see it ourselves. And we need the gracious hand of God, maybe a friend, maybe personal reflection, but always conviction through the Holy Spirit. And what we need to do is be aware of where we're short in order that we might turn to the Lord and be transformed. And the second thing is we don't know the future. We don't see the future, and so because we don't see the future, we try to predict it. We try and put plans into place. And sometimes we're doing that at our own strength and understanding rather than leaning in God. And, and so often that can lead to doom and despair. It leads us in acting a particular way that if we, if we had seen it coming, we would never have acted in that way. We would never have made that decision. We would have never turned left instead of turning right. Uh, but we can't see the future, so we do what we can. Now, I know I would like to share some of the story, or some of my own story over the last few years, but especially in the last six to nine months, as I feel like I've been living so much of this story where some of it has been blindedness, and again, not knowing the future. 
As some of you may know, I've been in charge of the, the farming operations at our egg farm. And for the last few years, um, in particular, so I've gone from managing the farms to just the manufacturing side. And uh, some of the challenges we're working through COVID, uh, particularly when you're an egg-based business and you've got hands on the floor and you can't have days off or work from home, particularly in the operations side. And not only that, but we've also had the biggest change that our company has seen since Black Saturday, uh, where we lost um, and actually had the largest commercial claim in Black Saturday. So it's it's a pretty big project we've managed through. Um, and I've had a couple of people ask, and it was around that grading floor in Yaroa. Um, but because it was the largest change, work actually became all-consuming with its expectations, requirements, and definitely not made any easier with the owner and the CEO being misaligned on how they thought the company should operate. And it's not only put me in an awkward situation, but I couldn't see any other way through it other than to listen to both of them and do my best to placate them both. And unfortunately, in hindsight, it was actually the wrong decision to make. It became increasingly difficult to maintain a work-life balance to work effectively, to lead people, to think clearly, to spend time with my wife and family. And I'm sure many of you have noticed in helping with the church and being present. And to achieve the outcomes of the business that required, and it actually affected me mentally, physically and spiritually. I would love to say that I was a model Christian this time, but the hard truth of the matter is that I wasn't. My prayer life and my walk with God suffered. I uh, really uh, was appreciating the fact that God uh, led me to to talk about Joseph this morning. The, uh, I woke up one morning and after praying for a couple of weeks around what God wanted me to share, uh, I always like having... Um, topics given to me and it's much easier always find it very hard when you have to come and do an open topic and I woke up in the one morning and God laid on my heart he said Joseph I want you to preach on Joseph and that was confirmed the following week when uh, Paul was talking about with you still with the, again with the kids and mentioned Joseph and there was another time a, a week later again where Joseph was mentioned and uh, I said right Lord I, I get the point mm. And um, I've really enjoyed reading through here and actually seeing that even though Joseph had so many times to actually give up hope with all the suffering and all the difficulties he was facing, he never, and I've been reading through Genesis and I cannot find a time where Joseph questioned his hope in Christ or in in God. And... um, it's a real lesson that God's taught me this morning, or through this last two years, is to have my faith and my hope in Him, um, and be. And uh, Joseph is a great role model for that. I did manage to pray for a few, for a way out several times throughout that period, um, and it came to a crunch point in January this year where we had some major difficulties at the workplace, and the CEO actually left a few months later. It was a pretty grey area at the time being. Information wasn't uh, flowing out from the heads of the company. It was limited. 
and I didn't even know if I was going to come out with a job at the other end. And uh, we were going through interest rates, hikes, um, lots of challenges around schooling. Um, Charlotte, our daughter, has had a few health challenges. Um, so it's quite a, quite, a, quite a time. Finally, though, a change of role was offered to me. And during that time, there was a, a lot of time where it was difficult emotions, difficult thoughts, and even the question of identity and who I was for several months. So time in that period was spent in many hours of prayer, mm. in discussions with my wife, my dad, and myself in rebuilding. <clears throat> Even though it's been a really tough few years, and I never expected it to be so before going into it, having come out the other side with the change of role, uh, working with the elders, the prayer, and the prayers from everyone here. I'm not, I'm not sure how much of the story you knew, but I, I've had a few people come to me and say, we've been praying for you, so thank you all. I'm hopeful of the future <clears throat> in my identity as a child of God, a father, a son, and work is only part of that. My hope and that of my household is in Christ. We fail to see that not only do we see in the life of Joseph where he's at the bottom of the pit, the foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who went down to the pit so that many of us who are in the pit ourselves might have a redeemer who delivers us from that pit. This is the good news. We don't expect Genesis to end. In verse 37, but sometimes we fail to see that there is more to our own story. There's some things that we can't see because we just don't know the future. And I'd like to share a section from Blaise Pascal in the book titled Ponce, or Thoughts in English. And he goes on to say, Jesus Christ, typified by Joseph, the beloved of his father, sent by his father to see his brethren, etc. Innocent, sold by his brethren for 20 pieces of silver, and thereby becoming their Lord, their Saviour, the saviour of strangers and the saviour of the world. Which had not been but for their plot to destroy him, their sale and their rejection of him. In prison, Joseph, innocent between two criminals. Jesus Christ on the cross between two thieves. Joseph foretells freedom to the one and death to the other. From the same omens, Jesus Christ saves the elect and condemns the outcast for the same sins. Joseph tells only, Jesus Christ acts. Joseph asks him who will be saved to remember him when he comes into his glory. And he whom Jesus Christ saves asks that he will remember him when he comes into his kingdom. But nor do we have to know. It is hope within our Lord and Saviour that he will rescue from us from the pit. The very God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob and of Joseph is our God is your God and is my God, if you believe in him. Some of his names are El Shaddai, God Almighty, the Redeemer, Yahweh, Jehovah, Al-Olam. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. Adonai, my Lord, he is our refuge, Shalom, Prince of Peace. 
the Lion of Judah, the Alpha and the Omega, Jehovah Jireh, our provider, the King of Kings, and in my native Zimbabwean tongue, Amwari. Let his hope be your hope this morning. Do not rely on the world or what it can give you, as it only pales. Actually, it doesn't even compare to the hope that God gives us through his Son, Jesus Christ. It is our duty and our commandment that we share the good news, the hope that we have in Jesus with those of us around our community at Monty and our own personal community, family and friends. Our God and the hope and the law in our God can be theirs as well through the message we share and through the work of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to them through us. As encouragement, I would like to share these verses with you as we come to a close this morning. And I hope you're encouraged. Isaiah 40. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. From Romans chapter 8. For this, in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it yet patiently. And in 1 Peter 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And my personal favourite, Jeremiah 29 verses 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. I'm not sure where you personally are at in your journey. Whether you're in the pit, whether you're tired of waiting and are trying to climb out the pit in your own merits, or if you've been pulled out of the pit and are being rescued. But I want to offer the opportunity for you to be prayed for and be encouraged. I'll be sitting down at the side of the church just in front of the crying room, just to my right there to your left. And we'll be there if anyone is wanting prayer. If you're not comfortable in coming up the side, uh, then please reach out to myself, another elder, or a friend within the church later on this week. But I do pray, uh, I do encourage you that if you are, f- um, if you are feeling that you have no hope, or if you're feeling like you can't see a way out of it, or, or you're suffering, why wait? Please come and pray. Please ask for to be prayed for, encouraged. just like to close in prayer dear heavenly father lord thank you for the story that you've given us with joseph that lord that it can be such an example of even though we can suffer lord that we don't know what the future is that lord we don't always know where we're going that lord that we can have hope in you that you are the same yesterday, today and forever, Lord, that your message, your love for us and your passion and just wanting to reach out to us is never-ending, Lord. It's the same and that you love us so much, Lord Jesus, that you gave us hope through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we have that hope this morning, that, Lord, that... Our hope will be rooted in Jesus Christ. 
And that, Lord, that through that hope, that, Lord, we know that it doesn't mean that our lives will be easy. We know, Lord, that it means we will still have times where we will suffer, where we will be challenged. But, Lord, I pray that you will cement us all in your hope this morning, that if we face difficult times, that if we face challenges and we can't see a way out of it, Lord Jesus, that we can look to you and that we know that you are bigger than any of our problems, our sufferings or our challenges, Lord. Please encourage us this morning and we pray, Lord, that we learn from the word this morning and that we take it into our hearts and that we can learn more about you. We pray this in your name. Amen.